Pulp MX Network production. To this day, when I hear that song, I see you standing there on that lawn. Discount shades, store bought tank, flip flops, and cut off jeans. Somewhere between that. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Pro Glow Wash, Works Connection, Bass Foundry, TL Speed Shop, Grandstone Boots, and Fly Racing. Welcome to the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas. It is Sunday, December 18th, and again, we are steadily creeping towards, well, lots of things, Christmas, New Year's, and most relevant for this podcast, the start of the 2023 Monster Energy Supercross Series, which is now called Super Motocross um, and SMX, and you're going to hear you know, that those two terms a ton, uh, having been involved in kind of the behind-the-scenes production meetings for that stuff just pre- be prepared for that that phrasing and they're going to really push that because there's a that's really the future at least for the next five years anyway you're going to hear super motocross and smx and all sorts of uh variations of that over and over and over so i have to practice start getting used to saying it myself so why not now before we get started uh with today's questions i want to thank the sponsors of this podcast pirelli tires and they just launched their uh, support program for 2023, which I'll talk about more in a little bit. Pump Creek Funding, they've added new states that uh, if you live in any of these states, they can help you directly. And if you don't, they can refer people. We'll talk about that. Guts Racing has expanded into the e-bike market. We'll talk about that. Fast Foundry, as always, helping small, medium, and large-sized businesses becoming more efficient. They can handle virtual events. You name it, Fast Foundry is there to help. Pro Glow Wash and their uh, Power Sports oriented brand of washes. Check those guys out. Works Connection, they have those brand new Yamaha foot peg mounts that were tested and helped. Uh, the development was helped by Chris Kiefer to improve that uh, rider triangle. And uh, as you know, you see that 2023 Yamaha 450 that Steve Mathis is raving about, um, that will only help get that bike into a, uh, let's say, a more efficient riding position um and that's what uh yeah i think chris Kiefer does a great job of that and he has uh really worked well with works connection to help all of you blue crew riders out there tl speed shop jason cobb and the crew down in wickenburg arizona i'm actually going to be doing uh one of these rides it looks like it's going to be april so that'll be really fun but if you ever want to uh, go on a side-by-side adventure overnight uh, multiple days and go to baja you can go all over the place check out tl speed shop Grant Stone Boots has been with me since the very beginning, and uh, if you like to go out on the weekends, maybe you work in an office and you need anything from wingtips to, you know, uh, boots. They have all kinds of dress shoes. They have loafers. They have everything, and they keep expanding. So check out Grant Stone Boots, International Vet MX Series. This is a brand new sponsor, and I will be sharing all of their events for 2023 pretty soon. Great group of guys over there, and uh, yeah, they love racing. Obviously, they you know they're very involved in the vintage motocross scene and just uh yeah i mean these are 
you know, kind of pioneers of the sport, guys that have been around forever and their, you know, their hearts are in the right place and they put on truly great events. So I'll be sharing more information with that. And last but not least, Fly Racing and all the things that are going on great at Fly Racing, working on some new products. We will have a new limited edition set of gear that comes out for A1. And yeah, it's uh, it's busy time, holiday season for Fly Racing. So this week, it will be more listener questions. Thank you to uh, the few people that did send them in this week. It helps me create content. And uh, yeah, as I always mention, it helps me to expand my thought horizon because it's very easy to get locked into just how you view the sport. You know, you get tunnel vision a bit because a lot of your friends feel the same way and you guys reinforce each other's biases. That happens a lot, right? If you have a bunch of like-minded people that are all friends, which is normal, right? If you hate, if you, if you vehemently disagree with somebody on everything, it's really hard to be friends, even though Steve Mathis and I somehow can do it. So what happens? You are around a lot of people that like the same things, feel the same way, way about things. Maybe you're politically affiliated and you just reinforce each other's opinions over and over and over. And that solidifies an opinion. So sometimes I believe it helps to get differing opinions. So I go out and I actively search out other podcasts. Um, I tend to lean towards the right as far as my political affiliation. So I listen to other podcasts. I listen to a podcast called Pivot, which is Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, and they're really, really smart. I don't agree with their politics many times, but uh, Scott Galloway is brilliant when it comes to business, so I learn a lot from him. And then it forces me to analyze and reassess my opinions. And I think that's really important. Um, a lot of times I come away feeling the same way I did going in, but that's okay. At least, at least I had to look at the other side of the equation. And I think that's really, really important as you move through life. Um, because I, I know people that are so locked and set in their ways that they, they won't entertain any other opinion at all. And I, I think that's really dangerous. I don't think it's the right way to go about things. So the reason I bring that up is these questions sometimes make me think about all angles of a scenario. And I, I enjoy that personally. I think it makes me smarter. It broadens my horizons. And I, I feel like I just, I become more well-rounded as a person. And when it comes to my affiliation with the sport, and as I continue to go into more television arenas and you know, this podcast is growing and I have a bunch of ideas for 2023, which I want to make, you know, them become reality. I want to be the the best at that as I can. I want to see everything from every different angle. So I have um, the wisest opinion on these things. So not only does the question give content for the podcast, which is important, but it also helps me grow as a person. So uh, I truly do appreciate it. Now, the first question this week comes from Rachel, and she is asking about Monster Star Yamaha. And she's wondering, how is, how is Yamaha able to pull this off? You know, you look at their team, they have so many riders from pro to amateur. You know, they've added, even Justin Cooper is going to be making some select races on the 450 now. And I look at the team, and I, I always wonder about budgets, and I wonder how they're possibly able to make this work and that's kind of how that that's how she's 
formulating this question as well. Uh, and, and also in comparison, how do I view Honda and Husky having much smaller efforts when they go racing? And, and how does that all equate? You know, how do the decision makers view that as far as budgets and risk versus, well, I don't say risk versus reward, but ROI, you know, their investment into the sport and how is that translating into profitability at the end of the year and bike sales and all those, all those things. There's, there's a lot to that, several moving parts. So firstly, on the Monster Star Yamaha, how do I view it? I believe that their presence as a independent team is allowing this to happen. And I'll tell you why. For an OEM to have a team this big and to be funding all of it themselves, I don't think is realistic. Um, I don't think that they see it as profitable to fund the entirety of it with that many guys. And the only way that you can possibly do it is to have all of these individual sponsors paying a ton of money. You look at Monster and you look at you know Thor with Gearside and Alpine Stars for helmets and boots and uh, 100% goggles. And then you just go down the line, there's a litany. And I mean, I don't even know, 50 individual sponsors that are all paying, you know, from tires and wheels to internal engine components to graphics to fuel. Like there's an endless number of sponsors. And then you start talking about things like Toyota Bescondido and all these sponsors that aren't necessarily directly affiliated with racing or they don't, they're not selling a product in racing, but they understand that Monster Star Yamaha wins races. They get publicity and they can get, they can gain exposure by attaching their name to that team. And it also allows them to advertise that team as an official sponsor. So that's how they're doing this. Now, having said all that, I heard, and this is purely speculation. And, and I don't really like, I, I'm not even going to throw numbers out because I don't, I don't like to do that when I don't have cold hard facts. But I heard that this team offer, operated at a loss in 2022. So when you say, how are they doing that? That partly answers that. If there is truth to it, and I say if, I don't, I'm not here to be clickbaity guy. That's, that's not me. I've never been that person. But I did hear, and, and from trustworthy sources, that that team operated at a loss last year. Most teams don't operate at a loss. Um, you know, if it's a factory team, that's a different story. Yes, they're operating at a loss because it's a pure marketing spend. But most satellite teams, if they're owned by one person, like this team is owned by Bobby Reagan, who owns Star Chevrolet and owns this team, and a pretty successful business person, the goal is really not to lose money. Okay, for any business, that's never the goal. I don't think Bobby's goal is to lose money either, but I think he prioritizes winning over profitability. And not everybody does that. Some people are willing to, and and that all depends on your personal finances outside of this team. If you're wealthy and you view this as a hobby or a passion project and you're willing to lose money, so be it. Now, a perfect case, you know, example of that is Mike Genova, who obviously is the Moto Concepts team owner, and they have all kinds of sponsors. I get it, Bullfrog Spas, whatever. But his, his business is called Moto Concepts. He operates that team at a huge loss, always has, 
and likely always will. And I, don't, I shouldn't say likely because maybe he lands some huge outside sponsor and that flips the dynamic. But I don't personally see it because I think he spends too much money to find a sponsor big enough to offset that. Now, Genova doesn't really care. He knows he's going to lose money, I think, each year. And he seems to be okay with that. Otherwise, why would he be doing it? If he was going into this saying, you know what, I'm investing in the short term for profitability in the long term, I would say you're crazy. <laughs> like You are throwing money away if that is the goal. I don't believe he is naive to that fact. I believe he understands that this is <clears throat> a tax write-off for his uh, you know, spa business. And he is okay with losing money because this is what he wants to do. He is very successful in business and this is just looked at as a spend. This is passion for him and he's willing to absorb the loss he takes each year. Now, does that end, right? If we go into some really hard times financially, does he say, yeah, I can't do this anymore? Maybe. I've seen that happen before. Let's go back to like 2008. Uh, Mark David Kwame, who you guys will remember as the MDK team. This guy is really wealthy. Uh, He was one of the founding members of Google. He was one of the founding members of LinkedIn. Uh, He's been, he was one of the partners at Sequoia Capital. He is wealthy. I'm not talking about, okay, Mike Genova's rich. Great. Good for him. He makes a lot of money. Mark Kwame is wealthy, like generationally wealthy, you know, like billionaire style wealthy. It's a completely different level of financial security that I'm talking about. Even he in 2008, when the economy was crashing, and, and you know, this was obviously GFC, Great Financial Crisis of 2008, he pulled the plug on everything, all of it, dealerships, suspension hop-up companies, the race team, every bit of it. He burned a lot of people. People didn't get paid. Outstanding bills didn't get paid. A lot of people took heavy losses in that move, and I think I don't think it was cool, but I also understand he hit the panic button because the economy was crashing and he was losing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in 2008. And I think this was an easy one. He just said, okay, cut everything. I, just get me out, basically. I, I think he, I would guarantee he has a team of attorneys that any contract he is offering, he has ways out. And if you are a rider, I know several riders that got burned in that, that team. Uh, several employees that got burned. If you're them, and I've been in this spot too, you're looking at it and you're going, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to sue this billionaire who has a team of high-powered attorneys on retainer that are just, one, they're just going to tie us up in court forever and I can't afford, I can't afford to be in court forever. And two, I probably will lose anyway because I guarantee, guarantee you that they didn't let him put any contracts out that didn't give him outs, didn't give him ways to just exit quietly. So you really have, you know, other than just his word and him wanting to do the right thing, you don't really have any recourse. And that could certainly happen for these teams. That could happen to Bobby Reagan. That could happen to Mike Genova. That could happen to anybody. I don't necessarily know that that's going to happen, but those are the risk factors for a team operating at a net loss. And I'm trying to bring it back, kind of come back full circle. These teams that aren't making any money, they could 
they could downsize really quickly if things go bad in the next couple of years. And, and it, the outlook for the economy is not great at the moment. Now, is it going to be as bad as 2008? I don't know. I don't think so. I would say unlikely. But anything that's just a pure spend that's not profitable is at risk in that scenario. And that includes factory race teams. I was a victim of that too. You know, all the support that I had been getting 04, 05, 06, 07, 08 from Honda and then to Suzuki got pulled because those manufacturers had to reel in marketing budget massively. I mean, huge. And did it hurt me? Of course it did. I lost a a lot of money in those years. But riders like Andrew Short, Davey Millsaps, I know the Honda one was severe. Those guys got paid a lot of money. And again, this is purely conjecture, but I heard that riders like Andrew Short went from, say, 800000 as his salary from Honda to 300000 That was the pay cut they got. And that was not, was not performance-based. He didn't do anything wrong. He was still in his prime. That was purely the outside world and external factors pushing the market. And that's just what, you know, the, the accountants and the financial decision makers, CFO, whoever says, okay, guys, we're in big trouble here as far as a recessionary environment, and we need to cut spending massively. So no, we're not going to stop marketing entirely, but what we're going to do is reduce it. We're going to cut it by, I don't know, 70%. Okay. So all you guys who are making a ton of money, guess what? We're going to have to tighten our, our belts here a little bit. So yes, you can, it's easy to sit back and say, oh, poor Andrew Short, you know, you're only making 300 grand from Honda now. I understand that's fair. And and, and as a rider that was making way, way less than that, I understand that dynamic too, but it's more to show what can happen if things go bad and a team like Mike Genovas, he could just go, you know what? I can't afford this right now you know, the economy won't let me afford this. And I need to get serious about my finances and I need to cut spending because if things get really bad, I need to worry about my financial stability, not just spending money hand over fist. So we'll see. Um, To answer your question, Rachel, and and I'm sorry, this got so long-winded, but I like to paint a really broad picture to understand all the dynamics of it. Anytime a team is spending money and losing money, just watch for other factors to influence that. You know, things have been really easy in 2020 and 2021. Power sports was booming. I know that firsthand because I, I get to see the books every day for WPS and fly racing. I know what our sales are like. I know the growth that we saw and it was really easy to borrow money. You could, you could lever up really easily because the, you know, fed funds rate was like zero. So you know, money was free, basically. If you wanted to borrow money, if you needed to raise capital, no problem. That's not the situation anymore. And we're only going to get more difficult in 2023 for that. Maybe not the entirety of 2023. But for now, we're in an interest, you know, rising interest rate environment, which makes borrowing very difficult, if not impossible. And it's going to have a negative effect on the economy. So just watch for that. If you see a team like star which has just exploded you know they not only were they probably the biggest team already then they go and hire the champion eli tomac for a couple million you know 
that's pretty insane level of spending. And yes, absolutely, Yamaha Motor USA picked up a huge part, if not all of that bill for Tomac. But it, I would think Bobby was on the hook for some of it, whether it was on a bonus level or something. He had to pay for something. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, yeah, Yamaha, can you pay for all this? Thank you. That'd be great. Um, I think Bobby is on the hook for some, if not all, of the 250 program. And, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of spending going on. And it's just something that as a, an industry and the sport needs to be mindful of because we went way up as far as like what spending was realistic and we may be about to roll over and kind of come back down to reality as far as what spending should look like. Um, so anyway, thanks for the question. Uh, also I shouldn't say that because she asked about, um, if I have any updates on triumph and I didn't even answer the Honda and Husky thing. So anyway, let's disregard my statement about Thanks for the question. Um, on the Honda Husky side, I think those are just much more realistic OEM participation. You look at Honda, they have a 250 program, they have a 450 program, two guys on each. That's pretty normal. You know, I, I think they would long-term like to farm the 250 program out again. You know, I think they would rather have like a Geico Honda that a team that is super professional, has good equipment, is capable of winning and can kind of manage it on their own, take that off their plate. And they can, they can allocate funding towards it. That's not the issue. I just don't think they would, they prefer to have that all in house. Um, so watch for that maybe down the road, if there's a, a viable partner that they could work with, I think they would prefer that situation, especially as jet moves into the 450 class that takes some of that shine off of it a little bit, and they can move that program out out of their house again and, and give it to another team. So we'll see, we'll see what happens there, but that's what I think they'd rather do. Then you look at Husky, it's kind of the same. Um, they have a 250 program, 450 program. And, and that, that team is interesting because it's, it was a private entity, right? Bobby Hewitt was the team owner there. Husky bought him out of his contract and brought it in house so that changed that dynamic entirely to where I think they wanted to consolidate it. They would rather spend their money in I'm trying to think of the right way to put this. They'd rather hire high profile winning capable guys, like two of them versus having a five or six rider team where you're going to get three through 10 most of the time. That's how I view their uh, approach to this thing. And, and you see a lot of satellite teams go the other way. They, they can't afford to hire or they can't get a rider like Tomac, Anderson, Jet Lawrence, that level guy. They're not going to go to a satellite team. Why would they, right? There's no upside for them to do that. Even like Tomac, you could say, okay, why'd he go there? Well, he's, his paycheck's coming from Yamaha. This is the factory Yamaha team. He has a full factory motorcycle. He has factory engineers, the Japanese are around all the time. So you, you say it's a satellite team. I would say yes and no. It's, it's factory Yamaha with star logos on it, basically. Um, but Husky, I think they want to win. You know, they're part of the KTM group and they view winning as the only goal. That's all they want to be there for. So I think they would rather consolidate the team to a few guys that are capable of winning. And if you really can't win or you don't have winning in your future, probably won't be around for very long 
That's uh, typically how these factory teams view it, and especially the uh, the KTM group. So different viewpoints, um, and, and mo- most OEM teams are going to have that two to four person team. And if it's just a 450 team, you're, you're typically going to see two. They can they can allocate funds and really prioritize winning. That's just it's just what they care about. They don't care about getting eighth. A factory team, eighth place is worthless to them. You know they will have a secondary guy that is kind of the the one A to their factory guy, and a lot of times that guy does finish seventh or eighth. But their focus isn't on that guy. Their focus is on the alpha of the team. And they want to win. They're there to win races. They're there to have their motorcycle on the podium promoting that motorcycle on national television. That's that's the goal. So the last question was on Triumph. And I, I don't have a lot of insight. I know there's a ton of testing going on behind the scenes right now in Europe on this motorcycle. It's interesting because they are going at this as from a brand new baseline you know most motorcycles that have been successful over the past few years whether it's husky or gas gas or i don't know it's probably two the the two best examples they were able to piggyback off of a very successful platform right they took that ktm that everybody loved and used it as the starting point and yes okay tiny tweaks here and there but starting from arguably the best platform in the sport, you know, go back, going back a few years, like it's really hard to argue that like the 17, 18, 19 KTM wasn't the most favored bike in the sport. Most people would agree with that. So they got to start from there. That it's such a huge advantage that Triumph doesn't have. Triumph is trying to start from nothing, build their own motorcycle. So what I see is there's going to be a ton of trial and tribulation they're going to be, they're going to have a lot of failure and they're going to have a lot of issue, you know, several issues and recalls and all these things. That's, that's just a normal part of the process when you start from zero. So I think it's going to be really tough and, you know, hopefully they have a ton of funding behind them because I think they're going to need it. I think they're going to have problems that they haven't uncovered yet. And I would say the same thing for Stark. They're going to have a lot to deal with that they just, they don't know the, what they don't know yet. And I use that phrase a lot at at my day job is we don't know what we don't know yet. You know, when we're launching a brand new product, we don't know what kind of failures we're going to have when the average customer puts it through the ringer. You know, they're going to do things to it that we would never suggest and we can't stop. Well, that's going to create pressure points and failures and unique issues that we have not planned for and and that's only going to be heightened when you're talking about a motorcycle with 10 million moving parts and i'm probably not even exaggerating when i say 10 million think about how many things are moving inside a four-stroke engine and how many parts and pieces that can fail if you're designing something from scratch so i want to be optimistic for triumph i really do but i am I'm skeptical. I, I just think it's going to be a tough road. And yes, they've created motorcycles, right? They know how to build motorcycles, but a dirt bike's a different animal. It's a completely different approach. And the, the bar is so high. And that's part of the problem is you look at what's on the market right now and you look at how good and how durable and the performance of 
a KTM 450, a Honda 450, these works edition bikes, that's what they're up against. These bikes are incredible these days. The fuel injection, it's bulletproof now. You know, if you leave your bike stock, you can basically ride it forever. I don't want to say forever. That's not fair. But if you just leave it stock and it's stock trim, they're really, really reliable. And that's what Triumph has to go up against in the market. That's what they're going to be competing against. Now, they're going to benefit from the newness, right? People are going to want to buy it for just to be different, try something, right? These markets in Europe are going to take to it because it's a European bike, right? And there's there's a long legacy of Triumph and core fans. They're going to buy it. That That's fine. That's great. Good for them. They're going to get instant business from that. I just worry about the, the viability and the issues in the short term and how much damage they do to the brand if they have the problems that I'm kind of foreshadowing. So something to keep your eye on. I don't know, you know, when that gets up and running, I think it's going to be challenging. Um, but I am rooting for them. I, I think it's great. I, I would love nothing more to have them be crazy successful and add another race team to the paddock. We, we need more of that. You see how, how much Suzuki has fallen off in recent years, even with the signing of Roxon. Um, we need the most involvement possible. So I'm cheering for them. Okay. Thank you, Rachel, for those questions. This question comes from Benjamin Leak, and uh, thank you for, uh, for the questions here. There's two questions in total. First, when it comes to training for Supercross, do riders ever do motos in the, in the evening to replicate race time conditions? He understands that there would be some logistical challenges, lighting, track prep, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, he, he's just kind of making the point that riders race at night. They do all this training during the day. And your body's in a different state. And I, this is not something new, right? This topic is not new. Riders and teams talk about this all the time. And trainers talk about this a lot because you program your body to perform during the middle of the day. And then guess what? Oh, wait, on Saturday night, we're going to ask you to be at your best at 9.30 p.m. You know, that's literally what happens. So it is a good question. And the answer is yes. Uh, teams do do this and that they have done this in the past. Now, the most famous example of this is James Stewart. He went out and spent, I want to say he spent 300 grand on lights. Um, that's the number I remember hearing was to put in full-time permanent lights at his supercross practice track in Florida. And if you remember, you can probably find pictures and video of this. Um, he would go and he would do his motos at night and this was the very reason for it because the dirt changes, your body is, is, you know, like you're eating and you're starting to get tired. So how do you snap your body out of that mode of it's time to go to sleep and be in time, it's time to perform mode. Um, your sleep patterns are changing, right? Like during boot camp, you wake up in the morning, you eat, and then your body's like, okay, it's time to do something. It's time to go ride. It's time to do my motos. It's time to train. But at a supercross race, you wake up and then you just sit around until like one o'clock. So it's, it, everything is different about race day. So for James, he went and made the investment to prepare at night. And for the other teams, the closest thing I've seen to doing this is they have rented lights and brought them to the racetrack. And they'll do a few, I don't know what the number is, a few test sessions at night. Right, and though at in California, so they're 30 minutes from Anaheim at their test track, they will bring the lights in, 
wait for the moisture to come in, kind of it sinks over Southern California from the ocean at night. The dirt gets more slippery, which is a big part of why they would do this. So traction changes, the bike responds differently, riders have to adjust accordingly, and they'll go through their, their program. They'll test some, they'll go through a full race program, but they're, they'll do as much as, as much as the budgets will allow to prepare themselves for this. So yes, this is something that is, they try to um, accommodate for, but it is, it is really challenging. It's not something you can do perfectly because for like Baker program, they don't have lights. So they just have to do their normal boot camp, And then they have to understand that, yes, your body's going to respond a little bit differently uh, at night. And, and my personal opinion is I think that's why you see guys take naps at around, uh, it's usually around five o'clock. By the time they get done with their final practice, they watch the tape, they debrief, they can go lay down from like 5 to 5.30, and then they need to eat something. But they can take a nap, and if, if you're really thinking about it, that can be that reset button. So if you take that nap, you wake up, and then you pretend it's the start of your day. You like try to trick your body into saying, okay, we just woke up, we're going to have my first meal, and then now we're going to start the day for this race program. That would kind of replicate what your body's going through all of boot camp. You wake up in the morning, you have some food, and then you go about your training day. Take that nap, have some food, go about your training day, which happens to be at night. So I I think there's a little bit to that as well. Another aspect of this is you got to think about these guys have been training nonstop in Florida on the Eastern time zone, right? Well, they're going to now travel to California, typically... Uh, either right after Christmas or right after New Year's, maybe the week of. Um, I, I know a lot of guys will go like right after Christmas, so they get two full weeks in California to adjust. But what I and, and Tim Ferry and a few others, we would suffer from is I would fly into California at the last minute just because I didn't have practice bikes there and test tracks there and all those things there to continue my training program. So I'd have to train all week in Florida and then I would fly into California like Thursday or Friday, typically Friday. And I would have to kind of adjust to the time zone. And the hardest part about that is I would be sitting on the starting line like wanting to yawn because in the main, you know, main event time, you're sitting there, it's past midnight, Florida time, right? And you're, you know, the main event would typically take off like 9.15, 9.20. Again, that's after midnight, Florida time. So what Timmy and I would do is throughout the holidays, you start, you know, Christmas and then all the way through New Year's, we would force ourselves to stay up. We would stay up till, you know, 12, one o'clock. And yes, it's difficult. Um, I would really struggle now because I go to bed really early, but you understood that you were doing this for a reason and you'd have to have activities, watch movies, talk, play pool, do something so you didn't fall asleep. But you wanted to kind of pre-program your body to be alert and awake when you got to California. Now, did it, was it perfect? No, it wasn't, right? We were still tired when we'd go to bed at 12 or one in Florida and we would adjust our training the next day. Instead of starting at nine, we'd start at like 11 because we still needed to get eight hours of sleep. But I I think it did help, right? Because I've done it the other way where I didn't do that. And there's no question in my mind that I was suffering from jet lag and time zone change throughout the night show when I should be super alert and just amped, right? It's freaking Anaheim one. How could you not be crazy excited? 
I'd be like dragging. Like I'd be tired because my body is still on East Coast time. And I'm like, you know, I'd have to like drink coffee and find it, you know, like sports energy drinks, not Gatorade or anything, but like stuff that is specifically built for, you know, endurance and to give you energy to like pep myself up. And I'd have to like warm up and, you know, run around. And I, I should have probably had like uh, smelling salts or whatever, but I was fighting it is, is really the point. Um, so that's just another angle to uh, Benjamin's question here about being ready to, uh, to train at, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night versus, you know, being asleep at that time in Florida. So good question there. Second question, can I give any insight into WPS decisions to branch out with new product lines? I've been thinking about this since I heard about FMF goggles. I like FMF pipes, but I could not bring myself to buy their goggles. Uh, I'm sure there must be some sort of strategy for making decisions like that, but I keep thinking it might make more sense to spin off a brand if you want to sell a product like this. Um, so yes, this is a very valid question. It's one that I've scratched my head kind of thinking about. And I think FMF in this dynamic is unique, and I'll tell you why. FMF has been wildly successful selling pipes. They are the absolute dominant player in the two-stroke pipe world. They crush that market. Four-stroke pipes is a little bit more broad as far as the market. FMF does well. Pro Circuit does well. Yoshimura does well. There's a bunch of players there that all kind of share the market. But two-strokes, FMF dominates. And they have for a very, very, very long time. But I think if you are FMF and you are Donnie Emler Jr., Right, so Donnie Emler started the company. His son, Donnie Emler Jr., is the head of marketing there. I think, and his nickname is Little Donnie. He's not little anymore, right? He's a he's an adult with kids, married and and kids. Um, he, I think, is constantly looking at how do we expand this brand? How do we look towards the future to keep growing instead of staying within this little niche? How can we possibly find a new market? Right? There's two sides to that, right? Most people will tell you to lean on your core competency. What are you really good at? They're really good at making pipes. Okay, well do that and just just knock that out of the park. There's something to that. I think that's a very valid point. But I also understand wanting to expand and continue to push horizons and how can you ever break out of that mold if you're not willing to try stuff. So if you think back several years ago, and some of you may not have even known this happened, but FMF made an energy drink. This was probably like 2012. I don't know. Several years ago, they made an energy drink and were pushing it, marketing it, sponsoring people. Well, they got shut down really hard. Uh, Monster went at them incredibly hard. Basically, in my opinion, Monster strong-armed them out of the market. I could be wrong in that. Donnie could tell me exactly what went on and that wasn't it at all. But that's my opinion is that Monster said, uh, yeah, you're not doing that. And I even heard stories about Monster basically telling teams, hey, if you, if, if Monster keep, or excuse me, if FMF keeps going down this energy drink path, if you run FMF pipes, we are not sponsoring your team anymore. Well, you can imagine how teams looked at that. They basically said, hey, FMF, stop doing this, please, because we want to use your product but if you keep pushing energy drinks, we can't. We, we're, we literally won't be able to have any affiliation. So that then affects FMF's core business, which is selling exhaust pipes. And they look at, well, one is going to kill the other. Like this very small 
project that we're working on is going to have very, very harmful ramifications on our core business. So I think in the end, Monster applied enough pressure to very sensitive areas to basically make them say, we can't do this anymore. We, got, we have to end this project because it's too risky overall. Now, that's my perception of it. That I don't have facts to back that up. It's just my opinion of how I view that whole dynamic, how it went down. Also, you have to understand that Monster and Red Bull and a few Rockstar, they own the distribution channels for this stuff, right? And that's why you see, you know, Pepsi bought Rockstar. Coca-Cola owns, I think, I think they're up to, it's either, seven, I think it's 17%, but they have options to buy another up to like 25% of Monster. But make no mistake, they, and I, I know they've already given them like $2.2 billion in cash as payment for part of that. And they have options for more. We'll see if they exercise those. Um, and then Red Bull has their own distribution model as well. But those are, those are distribution plays, right? If you look at Pepsi, they now own Rockstar. They own the distribution so they can squeeze anybody out of the market. Coca-Cola owns a big part of Monster. So now they have distribution network, the distribution network, so they can squeeze anybody out of the market. Okay. Red Bull has their own, thankfully for them. So they kind of control their own destiny. And in real terms, how that works. And some of you probably understand this and I'm, I'm not teaching you anything, but some maybe don't. And this is an interesting, I had to learn this is an interesting dynamic. If you look at energy drink companies out there and you, and you go into, go into your local gas station and see how many flavors of Monster, Rockstar, Red Bull, like there's all these endless flavors. I mean, tons and tons and tons of them. You know, Red Bull has all these, and they're actually taste really good, but I don't drink that stuff, but they do taste good. They continually push out new flavors, seasonal varieties. Monster has their zeros. They have all kinds of different varieties. Rockstar has their juice brands. It's, it's crazy. It, it really is. And I was like, how the hell do they do it? Why do they do this? It's not necessarily because they sell a ton of these. It is simply to absorb the market, okay? If you are the predominant player and you are going to talk to AMPM or 7-Eleven or think of all the big, you know, Jackson's is really big in Idaho, whatever, all these big convenience store conglomerates, also grocery stores, and you are Red Bull or your Pepsi or your Coca-Cola and you're going in and saying, okay, this is our lineup and we have all these Coca-Cola products and we have all Monster. Pepsi would be the same. They have we have all these Pepsi products. Think about it. 7-11 or 7-Up, Sprite for Coca-Cola, like root beer. Think about how many drinks there are out there, okay? Now, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Red Bull go in and say, "Okay, this is our offering. This is this is how we want you to buy. This is what we want you to buy." And what's what are the, what is that grocery store going to say? "No, we won't take your Red Bull Cranberry or your Monster Juice Zero or whatever the hell, right? This these crazy off the wall varieties. They what if they say no? We don't we don't want all those, right? The the head of Seven uh, Eleven store says we don't we don't want that. Well, that person, the you know head of sales or whatever, is going to go well. Tough because if you don't take some of these, if you don't fill your shelves with these. You're not getting the stuff that you sell. You're not getting the basic monster, which you make tons of money on. You're not getting Coca-Cola 
All the Coca-Cola products, you're not getting that. You're not getting a Coca-Cola fountain in your store, right? Which are, those things are profit centers. People go to those stores specifically to buy a Coke or a Diet Coke or get a fountain drink, right, for the day. So they leverage these other brands that nobody, or these other flavors that people probably don't really want to absorb market share. They take up all of those empty canisters. So a brand like FMF Energy Drink or whatever off-the-wall brand you see, um, what a 5150, what, have, what are all these small energy drinks that you've seen come up over the years? DNA Energy Drink, right? Another one. There have been a, just a ton. A litany. Brands I've never even heard of, I'm sure, all over the place. They leverage these stores with 500 flavors to make sure there is no available space to bring in another brand. That's what it's all about. That is the play. If you keep pushing out new color, new new flavors, new styles, new cans, new sizes, new everything, it doesn't matter if those make money or not. You don't care. You make your money on the on regular old monster energy flavor, right? And Red Bull makes all their I say all, most of their money on the original Red Bull can. That's what they're biggest profit center is, okay? But they build all this other crap to make sure that no one can infringe upon their market share. That's, they all do it. Rockstar does it, Monster does it, Red Bull does it. Those are the big three. And it's, it's smart. It's brutal. It's really tough. If you're a small energy drink or, you know, FMF in this case or whoever, you're like, damn it. Like, could you guys just give us a break here? Like, just give us like one second to breathe but that's what business is. It's, it's cutthroat. And these, you know, conglomerate behemoth brands are willing to probably lose money on some of these other flavors. It probably costs them in the end to keep building new flavors and pay, um, you know, whoever the chemists are to keep making, or I don't even know if they're chemists, but make new flavors, right? It probably is a money losing process, but in the end, it's very profitable to maintain and protect your market share in, in these stores nationwide. Think about how many convenience stores, gas stations, grocery stores there are across the country. I, don't, I have no idea how many there are. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands, right? That's probably being, that's probably being um, too low, right? That's a conservative number. But think about how many little single canisters like openings in those stores you start doing the numbers it's insane how much opportunity there is that they can block out so that's another dynamic working against something like fmf in that energy drink that's probably why it didn't work i know that's why dna didn't work is they just get shut out by these companies so for fmf I think this is just another idea that they're trying to make work, right? The, the energy drink thing didn't work. And, and I apologize for going so deep in energies, energy drinks, uh, whatever. It brings me back to the point. I think FMF is trying to find other avenues to expand and not just be an exhaust pipe business. I think energy drinks was a really good idea. It just didn't work. They got squeezed, in my opinion. I think they got approached or maybe they, maybe they instigated it, but a hundred percent is the goggle partner for FMF. Like if you buy it, if you bought an FMF goggle, it's a hundred, it's, it is a 100% goggle. They build it in the same factory. They use the same tool. 
It just happens to have FMF on it. Make no mistake about that. That's what you're buying is you're buying a 100% goggle. Okay. So whoever instigated that conversation, they agreed to a partnership and 100% has great distribution. Actually, WPS just started distributing in them, them as well. They have a great brand and they know how to market products. So if you're FMF and you have this opportunity to work with 100%, you're like, yeah, let's do it. That's another angle for us to let's give this a go. The trouble is I don't think that many people want FMF goggles versus what who the players are in the market, right? How What competitive advantage does an FMF goggle have over Oakley, Scott, 100%, Fly, Smith, you know, all the, all the big market players out there? What they don't really, right? They don't have a competitive advantage. And that's challenging. Now, I was actively involved in this because I work for WPS and WPS sells FMF goggles. So I watched their launch. I watched this become, you know, this project become reality and, and go to market. And they, they nailed the timing because they launched during COVID and most people were sold out of products. Like we were almost sold out of everything, right? So FMF comes in and they have product to sell, which was the number one biggest coup that they had was they had product availability. So for WPS, we sold a ton of FMF goggles in 20, late 2020 and 2021. That's not the situation anymore. Everybody has product now and the market has softened a lot compared to that. So the dynamic is much more challenging for FMF. And I know that's reflected in, in the success that WPS has selling them because the competition is back. Before, 100% had nothing to sell. Fly Goggles almost had nothing to sell. Scott almost had nothing to sell. Like we were all scrambling for inventory. Like we, we could not meet the demand in the market. Well, that's flipped now where... We have tons of inventory. Everybody has tons of inventory. And people are getting aggressive on pricing to try to move that inventory into a slowing market. So it's the exact opposite of what was going on. So we'll see how long-term, we'll see how this FMF project goes. Um, but I remember hearing from people involved directly in that project, like inside going, man, this FMF thing is, we're just blowing the roof off. Everybody else is screwed. We're going to own the market. And I'm like, calm down. Good for you guys, one. I'm happy to see that it's successful, but understand the underlying dynamics of this thing. And when no one else has product and you do, you're going to see a ton of success. And that's great. I have no problem with that. But don't confuse that with the customer and dealers actively and uh them prioritizing and you, your goggle being their preference. Those two don't, aren't necessarily the same. You are a benefactor of a, your product being available when nobody else's is. Now, when it's a fair open market again, and everybody has availability and it's the dealer has choices to make and the customer has choices to make across all the platforms and all the brands, then we'll see. And that story is still being written, but that was just my perspective is like, this thing really was getting crazy. Like I was hearing even from people at WPS, like FMF sales are incredible. Like we got to get more. And I'm like, everybody take a deep breath and understand, like, let's really look at what's going on before we, we create a problem that we don't need to have. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I don't have necessarily a good or bad opinion on FMF goggles. I don't really care. 
you know, it's, I don't manage that brand. I just, you know, actually, if anything, I compete against it with fly racing goggles, but I also want WPS to be successful in every venture. So I'm really neutral on it. I, I don't really care. I'm just kind of watching. I want to say from the sidelines, but it's really not. It's more, I'm watching from within the game a little bit and just kind of seeing how the story plays out. Um, as for your question, Benjamin, about, you know, fly and firepower and those things, Yes, there's a lot to that because if you have been paying attention at all, you'd know that like fly racing has a hard parts division and we have slowly been transitioning a lot of those pieces into firepower. And that's that was strategic. We want fly racing to focus more on what we do really well, which is apparel, helmets, boots, goggles, you know, pant, jersey, glove, um, socks. We, we do a lot of things really, really well. And we want to make sure that we continue to focus on those things. And what was happening is we weren't paying attention. And I'm, I'm guilty of this just as bad as anybody on our team. We weren't focusing on the hard parts side of things enough. It was being sold by happenstance versus focus. And the products are good. Like our, our um, tri-pivot levers and our bars and all those things, are, the quality is there chain and sprockets, you know, we outsource all those things from really reputable brands. Um, so we, you know, we have great quality, but we weren't focusing on selling them. We weren't, you know, advertising them or we weren't, you know, when I was out selling, I wasn't pushing them to, to have dealers and customers try them. So we wanted to get them migrated into a brand that could focus on them. And firepower, if you've paid attention, has really come on. It started out as a, a battery business and it's, it's grown and it, there's a, a full hard parts side of it, which, you know, fly is sending our, our stuff into that. So levers, bars, stands, um, foot pegs, all those things are going to be happening and are happening with firepower. So you're going to see that and like firepower Honda, right? Huge race team, Dean Wilson, they almost signed Ken Roxon. Um, but they have a, a really strong team, Max Anstey. You'll see them all throughout Supercross. Justin Brayton was a part of that, that program. And Firepower is growing like crazy. So our decision-making follows that same pattern where we want to have products in, their, in the right spot for them. And I, I personally felt for a long time, and, and finally it, it, it happened, that some of those items weren't the perfect landing spot for fly racing. It was becoming too much of a catch-all, right? Fly Racing has a lot of momentum. The brand is growing. It's grown a ton. Well, every new thing that came out, we were just slapping a Fly Racing logo on it. And I was fighting that to the death. And I was losing because people above me at the WPS hierarchy felt like it was a great addition to the brand and we could, we could use that momentum to help grow that product right out of the gate. Like put a fly racing product on it. People will recognize it and boom, off we go. We start selling. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand that. That's, there's logic to that. But also every single thing that you tie to this brand, that's not necessarily exactly what we do. In my opinion, it, it's like fly racing is this big locomotive at the front of the train, right? And we're just steaming forward. Well, the more things that you tag to it that aren't like you're not feeding coal, right? Like we launch a new helmet that's feeding coal to the locomotive engine. You attach something that has really nothing to do with our core competency. And I keep using that phrase. I apologize for that. 
something like a stand or something that's really not exactly what we do. And to me, it's like adding a train car to the locomotive, not adding coal to the locomotive, right? So I hope that that uh, reference makes sense because I want to add things that are going to drive profitability and sales and make us better in what we do really well, not add something that all it is is you're just tagging along to the great marketing and brand that we've built that you just want to sell something. So guess what? We'll tag fly racing onto it and that'll make it easier. Not really. In my opinion, you're dragging down the, the image and the reputation of the brand and you're just diluting it. That's a good word. You're diluting what you do really well. And we've, we've done that in the past and I hate it. And thankfully I think we're moving away from that. We're, we're finally un, unwinding some of that. And I, I really think it's a positive direction for the brand. Um, let's add items to the brand that make sense for what we're really doing and who we want to be. Like, what do we want this brand to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years? And let's do things that will help create and <clears throat> allow us to be that. Not things that are just, they're just like also ran items. I don't think that does anything. Okay, yeah, does it sell something? Maybe. Maybe, but is it allowing us to be the best version of ourselves? I would say no. And if it doesn't, then that outweighs any other aspect of the equation for me. Um, so I hope that helps explain a little bit um, about what we're, what we're angling to be at Fly Racing and the things that we're trying to get away from doing and also why you're seeing Firepower add a lot of these items to their repertoire is because that's more what they're going to be. They're going to be this... Um, hard parts, batteries, accessories for your motorcycle type brand. And fly racing is going to be all the things that you put on your body type brand. That's, that's kind of how I see it. And if I have any influence, that's, that's the way we'll continue to, to trend towards. Uh, so that's it for this week. Thank you again to all of the sponsors, Pirelli, um, that their amateur program and their support program is open. So you can go to, let me see if I have this, uh, email up. I apologize for not having that right away um there you can go to the pirelli website and you can click on your application for the 2023 pirelli nation program it's hashtag pirelli nation all applications have to be in by february 28th so that gives you some time you can get your resume ready get all those things ready if you live in the north like i do you're not riding anyway at the moment so it gives you some time to get prepared for the 2023 race season so get those resumes in to pirelli uh, guts racing. If you ride e-bikes or mountain bikes, most of you probably do. There's a ton of crossover there. Check out, uh, guts racing. They have seat covers for the Suron, the Telaria and the, the super 73 and the Segway. And, uh, they're adding more color options to their wing seats as well. The last note on guts racing is they've added Kawasaki to their complete seat lineup. So they can really handle anything you need for dirt bike or e-bike for, uh, for seat covers. Uh, guts rate, or excuse me, Plum Creek funding, as I mentioned, they've expanded so they can help you in these States. And if you haven't been paying attention to the housing market, it's in a tough spot. Interest rates are up. Sales are down. Mortgage applications are way down. Um, we're just seeing, we're, we're basically in a housing recession. So there's a couple different ways to view that one. You're going to get a good opportunity in 2023. I think to buy something, prices are going to come down. They come down a lot. And I think they're going to come down a lot more. 
interest rates are putting a ton of pressure on prices. You know, buyers are basically non-existent comparatively to the last two years, and that's going to drive prices lower. You're going to start to see a race to the bottom on prices. So that will give you an opportunity to buy. But what I would suggest is just reaching out to Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding. Ask him his perspective on these things. What can you do to better put yourself in a, you know, better put yourself in a better position as far as your credit score, mortgage application. There's a lot of different uh, opportunity out there. And I, I think that opportunity is going to grow for you. Um, and you just want to plan and prepare. And again, California, Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Florida, he is licensed in. And then if he's if you're not in one of those states, just ask him. He has friends across the country uh, that can make sure you're in good hands. And uh, yeah, it's all, it's moto people, right? Moto people helping moto people. Works Connection, check out those new Yamaha foot peg mounts. If you have a Blue Crew, if not, and you just want to get like a pro-launch start device, you know, I've been talking about that for years now. It's not a secret why all these guys whole shot. Factory Honda, Monster Star Yamaha, they all use pro-launch start devices. They, several times this year, they swept the podium in these classes. That is not a coincidence. They have the easiest to assemble and the most reliable starting devices in the business. So check out Works Connection. ProGlow Wash with their Power Sports products. Great team over there, Ryan and the crew. Uh, they have big things coming, expanding their retail presence. Uh, Amazon, I think Walmart's on the way. So you could check out ProGlow Wash. Fast Foundry, every aspect of business they can help you with. Um, they work with all sizes. They work with all applications. I've been talking about this for most of this podcast. The business dynamics are tough and they're going to get tougher. So if you have questions about how you can prepare for that, reach out, reach out to Robert Carrico and the crew at Fast Foundry and see what they can do. Maybe they can just give you some free advice. I, I, I know these people. I work with them all the time. I talk to them all the time. These are great people. And in the end, they just want to help. So reach out to uh, whatever the application, if it's, if it's for Fast Foundry, if it's for buying a house, refining a house, whatever, reach out to these people. That's why they're here. TL Speed Shop, Jason and Josh, uh, I'm telling you, if you want to take a power sports themed vacation and you want to get out of the cold, you want to get down to Arizona, you can go to Baja, you can go to Sedona, you can go to wineries, you can do multi-day trips. They can do it all, right? It's not very far outside of Phoenix, and uh, they take care of everything once you get there. Everything's dialed in. They do corporate events, um, so like you know, team building stuff. It's a really, really cool project they have down there at TL Speed Shop, and uh, they would love to work with you and maybe your company as well. Grandstone Boots, I uh, wore mine last night, went out, uh, had a drink, watched a little football. They always have me looking stylish, uh, so check out Grandstone Boots. And International Vet MX Series. I will have more information on their upcoming events. If you, maybe you're super into vintage. I know a ton of guys that I work with that are into vintage racing. They have old bikes, old collections. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe you just want to race with guys your age. You can check out these International Vet MX Series events in 2023. Great group of people over there. Thanks to James and the team for being a part of this podcast. You can also check them out on uh, Chris Kiefer's podcast. They'll They'll be involved over there too. But People, you know, their hearts are in the right places. They just want to go race their dirt bikes. Um, Great events to go check out in 2023. Last but not least, of course, is Fly Racing. And I'll be back at the office tomorrow. We have some really cool um, projects that I'm personally working on. And I'll have more news about that hopefully in coming weeks. Um, But probably going to see more of my face is what I'm hoping. So 
we'll see. But anyway, other than that, Fly Racing, we have new products coming. LE launch at A1, um, and then several more launches throughout the 2023 year to, uh, to keep you looking stylish. And if you ever have questions on Fly Racing, you can just ask me. You don't have to have a podcast question, but if it's a product question, and, and people do that. They ask me about cheek pads and sizing and application. That's great. That's what I'm here for. That is a part of my value to this brand. So please don't feel like you're bothering me. Um, that's literally my job. So I'm here for it. Thanks again, everybody for listening. And we will talk to you next week. See you.